Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 114 with Michael Houlihan and Bonnie Harvey of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan, and I am your host coming to you live from hometown, Melbourne, Australia. Now, today's guests is a little bit of a mix-up. We actually have a couple joining us. And this is something that we don't do that often, and this is uh, quite fun. Uh, we've got Michael Houlihan and Bonnie Harvey, and uh, these guys are the founders of Barefoot Wine. Uh, now, they actually sold that company, uh, but they wrote a New York Times best-selling book called The Barefoot Spirit, and uh, they ran that company for close to 20 years uh, which was absolutely incredible. Really interesting how they got into the winemaking business and uh, how they stayed in the winemaking business. Uh, they talk about, you know, the hard times. I think, you know, from the conversations, it, it took many, many years uh, before they even turned over a profit. And, uh, you know, they share with us what kept them going. But they also share a lot of great insights around, you know, producing and selling and marketing a physical-based product. They've got some amazing, really interesting insights around uh, their you know, number one customer acquisition strategy and how they scaled that up. And I think it's something that you might be interested in uh, to utilize with your current business. Uh, so something to think about. Um, they're really, really lovely people. Uh, they were so kind that they actually invited me to 
uh, visit them in Napa Valley at their ranch uh, when I'm next in town. I probably will take them up on that offer a little bit like uh, how I was lucky enough uh, to connect with Gary Muller and uh, he was kind enough to invite me to the Millhouse Inn which is uh, one of the top bed and breakfasts in the Hamptons and uh, he invited me and Emily and I took him up on that offer for sure so I'll definitely take up uh, Body and Michael's offer uh, the next time I'm in the States. But anyways, that's it from me, guys. Let's jump into the show. But before we do, I just wanted to give you a shout out and let you know about a awesome project that we're working on. It's a founder book. It's a physical coffee table book. It's going to have a compilation and the best of our interviews. Uh, it's going to be beautifully designed. If you know our work, uh, especially with the magazine or any of our design work, you know we, we go above and beyond when it comes to branding and design. So it's going to be a beautifully designed coffee table book with the best content uh, from all of our back issues, all the podcast episodes, uh, you know, Richard Branson, Ariana Huffington, Tim Ferriss, Seth Godin, Tony Robbins, list goes on and we're going to crowdfund it and we'd love your help and support. If you do follow this podcast, if you would like to get behind this amazing project, please sign up at foundermag, F-O-U-N-D-R-M-A-G.com forward slash book. I'd love your support. It's going to take this community that we're building to bring this project to life and uh, it's going to be an amazing body of work that I'm really, really proud of. All right, guys, now let's jump into the show. The first question that I ask everyone that uh, comes on is, how did you get your job? (laughs) (laughs) That's a very interesting question. Um, We never really intended to go into the wine industry, interestingly enough. We kind of got into it by accident. What Michael and I really intended to do was to live a a wonderful life here in Northern California in the wine country in Sonoma County and continue with our consulting businesses. We were both business consultants, but I had a client shortly after Michael and I met and I'd found out that he was owed uh, for three years worth of his grapes. He hadn't been paid. Gotcha. And I had asked Michael to please uh, go to the winery and see if he couldn't collect the funds that were due my client. So Michael went there and he found out something pretty interesting, didn't you, Michael? Yeah. When I drove up, I found out that they had declared bankruptcy that morning. So this did not look good for the home team. It didn't look like we were going to collect a penny. It was, you know, take your ticket and wait your turn. So... We, I went into the meeting anyway, and they were all sitting around, and I was looking out the window, and I noticed a big row of tanks, and I said, well, what do you got in those tanks? And they said, oh, we have bulk wine, Cabernet Sauvignon and Sauvignon Blanc. And I went, oh, really? And I looked out another window, and I saw this huge machine. It looked like a chrome locomotive. And I said, what's with the chrome locomotive? And they said, oh, no, that's a bottling line. I said, really? Does it work? And they said, yeah. And then it hit me. And I said, oh, my God. Why don't we do this? Let's do a trade. Let's do a trade. You take some of that wine over there in those tanks and you run it through that bottling machine. And instead of paying my client money, you pay him bottled wine. So I went back to bottle. We got a contract. They agreed. 
And mm -hmm. so we we're going to scrub. So we basically scrub the debt by trading for goods and services. And so I went back to Bonnie and I said, hey, I think I got this all figured out, you know. Um, and what did you have to say I, about that? <laughs> I said, well, that's certainly not going to pay any bills. Now we've got another challenge. How do we convert this uh, wine and bottling services into cash so our client gets paid? So that's essentially the very beginning of how Michael and Bonnie got into the wine business and how uh, we created Barefoot Wines. Uh, the short story is after four months of research on both of our ends, our client said that he was unable to take on another business. Mm. So we said, well, instead of us working for you, why don't you work for us? You're a winemaker and a grape grower, so we can use your expertise. You can front us grapes. You can give us winemaking um, consulting. And we'll take the debt, and we will take the bottling services and the bulk wine, and uh, we'll go out and sell it. Hey, how hard could it be? <laughs> and how long could it take? <laughs> oh, we figured it would take, you know, three, maybe four years. Yeah. Well, it took 19 yeah, wow. And can you give us some context, the audience some context? When did you guys, uh, when did this occur? Like, when did this company start? Okay, so the original company started in uh, 1986. That's when we did our first bottling of Barefoot Wine. And uh, the context is that in America, uh, wine was very snobby. Only about one out of 10 people drunk wine. Most people drank beer. People didn't like wine because it was not only snooty, but it, it was expensive and it was hard to understand. So we come out with a brand called Barefoot, which is fun. It's got a big foot on the label. So we're obviously not taking ourselves really seriously. And it's $5.99 so people can really afford it. So now people who used to just drink beer all of a sudden are trying wine because they can afford it for the first time. Well, that, that's the good news. The bad news is that when you're trying to produce, you know, a, a, an inexpensive product, you'd better produce a gazillion of them because you've got to pay your bills. And so for us, we didn't break even until we sold 200,000 cases a year. Wow. So, so we kind of like, you know, ignorance is bliss. And we were, <laughs> we were totally naive about what it took or, you know. Uh, you know, what we're up to. If we had known then what we know now, there would be no Barefoot Wine. It's now the largest wine brand in the world, but it would not exist if we had had a clue. Yeah, no, that's the that's the funny thing, right? When you get into an industry you know nothing about, if you did know something about it, you probably would stay away from it. That's kind of like me with publishing a magazine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you know, I bet it is, Nathan. But you know, Nathan, it's folks like us that disrupt the system because we're coming in from, you know, left field and we're doing stuff that we feel is right and that, you know, people we know want, but the industry is not addressing. Mm. And so that's where disruption happens. And so Barefoot disrupts the entire industry. Uh, the industry realizes, oh, my gosh, you can't have a fun label. Uh, you can't have wines that are blends. Um, you can't have easy drinking wines that are inexpensive. And not only that, but uh, they're going to lead people to buy the more expensive wines. 
So the industry really didn't like us to start with. They said, oh, it's a joke. You guys are cheapening wine. You know, how could you do it? You put a foot on your label. You guys are nuts. And then <laughs> 10 years later, it's, oh, gee, we really like Barefoot. You know, uh, my tasting room is filled with people who started on Barefoot Wine. Yeah, wow. So tell me um, about the early days. Take me back to, you know, you're charging $5 uh, per bottle. Um, I, I guess shelf space was difficult to attain, uh, difficult to break even, like you said, uh, moving and, and producing uh, at scale. Tell me about that. Take us back. You know, I'll speak about this because I handled the sales, Bonnie handled the production. But we went to the largest super supermarket in the state of California at the time, the largest wine buying supermarket. And we asked them, you know, we said, hey, we've got all this wine. We've got all these bottling services. Just tell us what you want. And they said, wow, nobody's ever asked us what we wanted. They all come in here telling us what they got, beat us up with features and benefits and pricing. And you come in here and you ask us what we want. Well, we'll tell you what we want. There's an opportunity in our in our set, which is in their planogram, which is, you know, the, the brands that they carry. There's an opportunity for a 1.5 liter bottle because that category uh, doesn't have a lot of choices. And so if you give us a 1.5 liter bottle, you know, and you make it like a red and a white varietal and, uh, you, you know, you keep the price down. And the quality up. And the quality up, of course. Uh, you know, we'll we'll uh, we'll consider it, mm. and so we did exactly that. We put it into a 1.5 liter bottle. You know, we gave it a fun name and you know a label and all that. The name was the same as the image barefoot. It's English barefoot, and the barefoot image is international, non-confounding. You know, logo. So we take it back into them. We say, here it is. Everything you asked for. And they said, we can't take that. And we said, what are you talking about? We bottled it all up for you. And they said, well, no, we, nobody knows anything like Barefoot. Nobody's ever heard of a brand called Barefoot. You know, you're going to have to go out and sell it to every mama papa in every corner grocery store. So there went plan A. Plan A was we were going to bottle it all up, sell it to the big chain store, make a bunch of money, pay off the debt and put a little on our pocket and go on to the next program, right? Mm. But no. Now we have got all this stuff bottled up and uh, nobody will buy it. So we have to start selling it door to door. And that was tough. We went to 100 accounts in San Francisco and only 10 bought it. And they said, look, um, are you going to do any advertising on this? Nobody knows this brand. Uh, and, it, and if it doesn't sell in two months, we're going to discontinue it. And so we thought, oh, what are we going to do? But then what happened? But then... We got a call from a man that was doing a fundraiser for an after-school park in San Francisco for the kids. Mm. And uh, he asked for several thousand dollars. And uh, we said, well, we certainly don't have any several thousand dollars to give you, but we really do want to support the kids' park. So tell you what, we'll give you some wine. Heck, we can't sell it anyway. <laughs> So we gave them some wine for their fundraising event. We said, maybe, you know, you can uh, auction it off or you can serve it with your dinner. Maybe it will loosen up the people a little bit and they'll write you a bigger check. Hmm. So we did that and um, we never heard from him again. However, 
we noticed in the depletion reports that we got from our distributor in San Francisco that the stores around the region where this fundraiser had taken place were selling barefoot. They were reordering the product and we were not getting orders from elsewhere because we were brand new at this time. So we got really excited and we said, I wonder if this has something to do with our contributing to this fundraiser. So we tried it in a few different areas, supporting uh, local fundraisers and charities and projects that the community was interested in supporting. We started supporting these same charities and sales really took off around the area where we were supporting charities. Wow. So it was by contributing to the community, by supporting the, the same issues that our uh, shoppers were interested in, that we were able to sell our product. And because we weren't paying for advertising, this became our form of advertising. It's what we called worthy cause marketing. And that's what we used throughout the nation when we started to spread the word and we started to grow and expand. That's what we used to get the word out. Worthy cause marketing. And it worked like crazy. We never did pay for advertising. Yet we became one of the fastest growing wine brands in the nation without paid advertising. Now that's pretty amazing. Don't you think, Nathan? Yeah, no, that's crazy. And... um. Would you be able to uh, give us some context around the numbers uh, in terms of either bottles produced and sold in one year or, or turnover um, during that period? Oh, sure. Well, we had uh, 12 bottles in a case, and uh, we were selling about 600,000 cases a year. Wow. Um, so you can do the math. It's a lot of bottles. So I, I guess I guess the thing that, you know, Bonnie was trying to say is that we discovered and today as consultants, we help businesses by putting them together with the right cause that resonates with their product and their logo and their name and all that. And, and we call it worthy cause marketing, but you're giving the members of the community a social reason to buy your product which we found to be stronger than a, than a mercantile reason. Mm. They would buy our product even when it was priced higher than com competitors just because they knew that we were supporting them. We got involved, uh, for instance, with the Surfrider Foundation, and they only had like three little chapters, and they were dedicated to cleaning up the ocean and the beach, and we thought, well, our label is barefoot, and they're barefoot, and you wouldn't want to step on a piece of glass on the beach in your dirty feet. So, I mean, in your, in your barefoot. So, and you wouldn't want to put your foot in a polluted ocean. So why don't we work with these guys? So we went down and met with them and we said, how can we help you? And they said, we have a blue water task force where we're, we're opening Petri dishes and beaches up and down the coast to see where the pollution is coming from. And so we put a sign on our bottles in the supermarkets in uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco along the Pacific Ocean and uh, said, hang 10 for clean water. So imagine, here we are. We're not saying buy one, get one free. We're not saying $2 off. 
Mm. We're, we're not saying two for the price of one. We're saying pay $5 for this bottle of wine and then pay another $10 to this nonprofit organization that's cleaning the beach. And so that was a really radical departure from standard marketing, mm. uh, let me tell you. And we raised quite a bit of funds for them. And we became friends with them. And they supported our product as we expanded across the United States onto the East Coast and uh, even into Europe and uh, down into Australia. Once you once you found that this strategy worked really successfully, um, you scaled it up across the nation, right, and into other countries as well. Absolutely. Um, what we did is we would see what we did is we said, okay, what are the groups that are important to the people who come into this store right here, wherever it is in the world, mm. and buy our product? What's important to them? And so then by supporting what's important to them. We gave them a social reason because they're going to buy wine anyway, and they could choose any brand they wanted. Mm. So why not choose the brand that supports your group? Yeah, and you guys, you guys were never a non-for-profit either, right? Oh no, we were for profit. Although, well, we, although <laughs> that, that's questionable. That, that's questionable. <laughs> we, we we actually were. Uh, we did not make a profit for several years. It took a long time to uh, build our brand. And even when we did start making, quote, unquote, a profit, that was all reinvested into growth. Yeah. Mm. See, what happens is we deal with a lot of clients and uh, students uh, today who are, you know, entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs, and they think, oh, I'm going to start a business and make a lot of money. Mm. Well, what they're really talking about is starting a business, building a business, and getting acquired and getting a giant check for the acquisition. Now, that's real success. Now, those people, they're called serial entrepreneurs. They build one business, they sell it. They build another business, they sell it. Well, the first business they built, they had to take every dime that they made and put it into growth because the minute they opened their doors, especially with something disruptive or new, Everybody knew all of a sudden, oh, my gosh, look at that. There's a market for that. Look at that product. And so then the question is, are they going to get knocked off? And how fast are they going to get knocked off? And then the next question is, how fast can they stay ahead of them? Because they started, they're the original ones. They are the ones who identified the market. The only way they can stay ahead of them is to continue to invest in growth. They can't just sit there on their haunches and say, I was the first one to market, or they'll get passed by somebody with more capital. So that means you don't really get paid until you sell. Yeah. And so that was that was the real hard pill that we had to swallow. And I, I think we were in it for four or five years and we go, hey, when do we get paid on this deal? <laughs> yeah, wow, that's really interesting. Um because it is a common misconception, you're right, that a lot of people think that when you start a business, you're going to become a millionaire or, you know, there's such thing as an overnight success. And you guys are a testament, uh, a massive testament to patience. Can you give some context to the audience how long you guys, uh, you know, you started and then ended up, how long it took for you to start and then actually end up selling uh, Barefoot Wine, and which was inquired in 2005 by EJ and Gallo Winery. Yes, well, because we started off with a large amount of wine, the fact is the amount that we bottled and eventually sold, we started off as a medium-sized winery. 
it was a $300,000 debt that we converted into bottling services and wine. Yes. So that, that was a medium-sized winery, so we never really started small. Um, and it took us many years to start growing it. We tried to expand into uh, different territories, and uh, sometimes we were slightly successful, and sometimes we weren't. For instance, we went into Hawaii thinking, you know, the beaches are covered with bare footprints. What great advertisement, right? Mm. And half the bars are called barefoot. So that would really be totally successful. But we found out that unless Michael was there personally making every sale in every market personally and returning to get the reorders, we did not get reorders. Neither the market nor the distributor nor the distributor's salesperson picked up the reorders because we were new and it was just not something that was forefront on their minds. So until we could afford to hire a salesperson that was on our staff and worked exclusively for us in that territory of Hawaii, we had to pull out. And we had to hire a salesperson in every territory where we expanded in order to uh, keep an eye on the distributor, the marketplace, and also to support the community through worthy cause marketing. And it was by doing that slowly over the next, you know, 15 years that we were able to build our product from uh, about 25,000 cases to 600,000 cases. Yeah, wow. And... uh, that, that, that was a long struggle. And we sold also in all military bases and in 26, 28 foreign countries. Yeah, wow. And so how long, how long did it take before you guys um, turned over a profit? I, I don't know that we ever did, but I, I think see, what happens in business is the business winds up providing things for you. At first, the business doesn't have enough money to afford cars. But after a while, the business buys cars. Okay, mm-hmm. so now you don't need a car. And then after a while, the business is able to pay for an office. So you don't have to have an office in your house. And so after a while, the, the business winds up being able to buy insurance. And so now you don't have to buy insurance. And so this is the kind of, if you want to call it profit, that we received in terms of actual money. I think we took a very modest draw in actual cash. You have to remember that, you know, we, we, we went to, uh, we wanted to buy a house. It was about a $300,000 house, which is very low price house in California where houses are selling for millions. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> the bank wouldn't give us a loan. And we went to the bank and we said, Hey, wait a minute. Four of our employees have applied to you uh, for a mortgage to buy houses for themselves. We know it because we filled out the forms and your bank's logo was on it. Mm. And we're here asking you for a mortgage for this little house. And, uh, you know, we own the place and you won't give us a loan. And they said, well, that's different. They have a good, solid job. See, and so, we were self-employed. Yes, yeah, so, that was the big difference. So we were self-employed. So what we had to do, and this is crazy. This is really nuts. We had to incorporate, and then pay ourselves a salary. 
And then two years later, we had pay stubs to show the bank to get a loan on a house. Isn't that crazy? Now, when yeah, you're wow. incorporated, when you're a C corporation, you know, half of the profits go to Uncle Sam. In, in our case, in the United States, they take 50% of the profits. Mm. And so now it behooves you uh, as a business owner to figure out how many things you can buy through the business that are cost to the business, right? So, And expansion of territory is one of those expenses. We uh, used any, shall we say, excess funds to expand our business. So we never really did show a profit that uh, the government could take 50% of the taxes up because we were constantly expanding. See, so the thing that you have to remember is if we had stopped, we would have made a profit. But we didn't stop. And the reason we didn't stop, because we knew that we had identified a market. We said, oh, my gosh, look at this. These beer drinkers will drink wine if it's easy drinking, if it's good tasting, if it's inexpensive, if it's fun. They will drink wine. And that was a big deal in those days because it was in the United States. It was like eight to one beer drinkers over wine drinkers. Now it's about even. Wow. Okay, interesting. So... You sold the company to EJ and Gallo Winery in 2005, and uh, you started around, you know, 1986, would you say? Yeah. Yes. So about 19 years uh, you guys were working on the company. Um, like you said, didn't really turn over profit. Um, first question, uh, what kept you guys going during that period? Um, and I, I guess you, you know, crushed it with growth and uh, market saturation. Um, and then the second piece was, was how did that sale come about? Well, I guess the for answer to the first one is um, what you call sheer grit. Okay. That's what kept us going. Um, we had to get through tight spots where we just had to like white knuckle it. Um, and I mean, you know, we had a cash flow projection that showed uh, where the cliff was. In other words, where we were going to run out of money. And for like the first 10 or 15 years of that business, that cliff was two months away. It was never more than two months away. Wow. So, you know, and sometimes it was two weeks away. And sometimes we were holding checks that weren't covered and having them, you know, pinned to the wall with dates on them that say, do not release this check before May 5th, right? <laughs> You know, and sometimes we would have to call up our suppliers and say, you know, that $30,000 that we owe you in two weeks? Well, we just did a cash flow projection and we're going to tell you now we're not going to make it. We're calling you because we don't want you to be, you know, blindsided. And, uh, you know, we, we have two or three checks coming in and they're earmarked for you. And most of those vendors would be very reasonable with us. And they'd say, wow, you know, nobody's ever called us and told us when they were going to miss a payment. We always have to call them after they miss the payment. And you're the kind of people we want to do business with. So they actually extended our credit. You know, another thing that we did, and a, a lot of this, we were broke, right? And we were in way over our heads. And we were facing bankruptcy almost every day. And so we had to get really clever about how to identify and uh, get people who are supplying us to give it to front us goods for like long periods of time, you know, with like no interest and stuff like that. So, I mean, that's as good as money, right? Mm. And 
and get them to warehouse for us for free and give it to us as we needed it and things like that. So why did they do that? They did it because they knew they could trust us. We always made good. We warned them when we couldn't. And we also met with them like every two months and sat them down and said, okay, here's our plans. This is what we want to do. And, you know, we're going to need more glass and we're going to need more wine. But guess what? If we're successful, we're going to buy more wine and glass from you guys. Yeah. See, so they they began to see us as uh, you know part and parcel to their own expansion. So that's pretty much how we got by. Um, I don't know what else kept us going besides uh, our our friends. <laughs> well, what what kept us going was the response we got from the public when we did these various tastings and fundraisers. The public we knew loved the product. They would actually pick up a bottle of Barefoot and hold it close and say, oh, I just love the foot. <laughs> and, and they'd taste it and they'd say, I can't believe this flavor is so good and this price is so reasonable. And also because of how happy they would be that we were supporting the fundraisers in their community. So it was definitely our end user that we met face-to-face on a regular basis that kept us going. Yeah, We knew we had something that they wanted. It's sort of like when you know that your end user wants your product, but you're frustrated because the middle people, the people between you and them, such as the buyer for the supermarket or the distributor, has never seen anything like it before or doesn't believe there's a market there. Or you're just new and you got to wait your turn or all these other reasons. And so that's what you're really up against. And what keeps you going is you know that end user really likes your product and wants it to get all the way to them. I see. And did you guys um, ever feel like giving up? Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, was, it was very tough. Uh, a lot of times, yes, it did. The idea but, you know, when, when you swim halfway across the channel, you're not going to give up and turn around and go back. So we were kind of stuck in the water in the deep end, so to speak. And we never really felt like we had an opportunity to go back. We kept going. We said, we're going to see this out and right to the end. It's kind of like a surfer, you know, that's trying to surf on a big wave of debt that's curling over his head. You know, and he's kind of in the pipeline and uh, he knows that if he kicks out, he'll get crushed. So he has to ride that wave all the way out. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I know what you, you, I know exactly how you guys are feeling. So I'm curious, um, you know, cause your, your story is an incredible story of an immense amount of patience. So tell us about how the sale of, of your company came about. We realized that we had a lot of appreciation for the way that Gallo was uh, conducting themselves in the market. They were selling quickly. They were always on the shelf. Uh, They were very popular, and they had an excellent customer service. They were seen in the marketplaces, um, taking care of the buyers, and being aware of what was on the shelf. And um, Michael, because he would be visiting distributorships, saw their sales reps at distributorships and saw that they were taking care of the distributors. 
So they were very active in the marketplace. So we looked to them first as being our ideal buyer. They had a wonderful network of distributors and retailers already in place, which is one of the things that we were looking for when we were looking for an ideal buyer. They were a family-owned company, which was really important to us because they were able to make plans that extended way into the future that they could actually keep because they weren't trying to satisfy the shareholders. And um, go ahead, Michael, you tell them some more things. Well, you know, the, the, the thing is, when Bonnie and I realized that in order for the business to go to the next level, it was going to require a huge infusion of capital mm. or we were going to have to monetize it. And you remember, we were trying to monetize it when we started. And here we are, you know, later going, you know, we have to monetize it, finally. So, you know, there's, there's all of these questions like, and this is what we tell our students and everything else is like, the question is, how big does your business have to be before you become an acquisition target? You know, if your purpose in going into business is to get the big check, is to take your idea, wrap your idea in a business, wrap your business in a brand, and build your brand until it becomes an acquisition target, the question is, how big do you have to be? And for us, the answer was 500,000 cases a year before anybody would even consider acquiring us because of our price point. Mm. So, so here we are, you know, finally, we're over 500,000 cases a year. And so we're thinking, you know, if we sell this brand to one of those uh, stockholder corporate, you know, organizations that own a lot of wineries and spirit companies and everything else, they'll destroy the brand. And then we'll have no reputation. So we had to pick an acquirer. A lot of people say, oh, you know, you're lucky they bought you. Well, the fact is we were trying to get them to buy us for years. So we even had like the same distributors that they had. And, uh, you know, we went out of our way to, as we say, put the peanut in front of the elephant. And uh, finally, we were able to get to a point where we could come to some terms. Yeah, I see. And um, I'm curious around that, uh, around in the sense that People often say that um, the best possible time to sell your company is when people are knocking on your door. When you were knocking on their door, did you think that that changed the mentality from the buyer's standpoint? Um, they were already aware of us and they saw us as growing. So it was uh, pretty obvious in our industry that the top players in our industry were interested in our product. Um, and we knew the top players in the industry and they had talked about, well, our progress, whether we wanted to sell and that kind of thing. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't like a cold call and we didn't personally go to them, but we went through a broker who had a successful business relationship with Gallo previously. Gotcha. So that's that's another lesson that we give young entrepreneurs is that um, you really want to talk to a broker who has had experience selling a, a, a like business 
in your industry and ask them about the metrics. Ask them uh, about the volume, the growth potential. Ask them about the income level and ask them all the questions that pertain to your industry about the last sale that this broker had made. And that is exactly what we did. And we told this broker that we felt that Gallo would be the ideal buyer. He agreed. He presented it to Gallo. And uh, we took it from there. Yeah, okay. Wow, gotcha. And let's switch gears um, because what did you guys do? What have you guys been doing since, um, you know, since building one of the biggest wine brands in the country? Well, the first thing that happened was that uh, uh, Ian J. Gallo hired us uh, as consultants to work with them for a year uh, to basically, as they put it, keep the barefoot spirit alive which was their way of identifying the entrepreneurial spirit that was behind the Barefoot brand. So they wanted to keep it alive within their big corporation. So we actually went to work as as consultants, as brand consultants on our own brand Hmm. uh, and advised them about things they could do to keep the spirit alive. And um, we're very happy to say that a lot of the suggestions we made, uh, they carry on. I also, you know, like for instance, they're big on supporting uh, the charities and, you know, the whole idea of uh, supporting the different groups that we did. And so we're really happy about that. But then we said, you know, this keep the barefoot spirit alive business. We thought, you know, why don't we call, why don't we write a book? Because everybody kept saying, well, you guys got to write a book, you know, that's got to be some kind of like cliffhanger, you know, where on every chapter, you know, we get in trouble and then the next chapter we get out, but we get into more trouble, right? Mm-hmm. And so and so we wrote a book and we called it The Barefoot Spirit, How Hardship, Hustle, and Heart Built America's Number One Wine Brand. And so that book became a New York Times bestseller. And then we got asked to go and travel around the country and speak. So we began to be uh, speakers. And, you know, Bonnie had never spoken before. I had spoken because I had to, I had to speak to, like, large groups of salespeople and distributorships and get them all hyped up to go out and sell. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she... Had never done it before, but, you know, on her first uh, debut, she got a standing ovation. So oh, that wow, encouraged awesome. me. <laughs> so, so then we became speakers. And so now we travel all around the world and we speak at conventions. We speak for companies. We speak for associations. We spoke at, uh, uh, in Australia recently at the Gold Coast College there, Griffith Gold Coast, to their School of Entrepreneurship and uh, we've 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 uh, speak for the students at uh, Nanyang University in Singapore, and uh, also uh, at places like uh, Trondheim uh, in Norway and all over the United States, Canada. So so it's it's kind of interesting. We've spoken at forty schools that teach entrepreneurship. Uh, we love young people. We don't have kids of our own, so you know they're kind of like our kids, and you know we feel like we've got a you know, pass on what we've learned so that they get a big head start. And so that's what we've been doing really since then is we've become 
uh, teachers and on this in this whole area of entrepreneurship, but we're not teachers in an academic way. We're we're actually people who really did it. You know, who mm. we really got our butts kicked hard. Yeah, no, I think that's really key. Um, and you guys, you said that uh, you 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 recently launched a course on uh, keeping your stuff on, on the shelf. Yeah, we just we just got through shooting a course, a five part course on how to get your product to the shelf and keep it there. So this is for people who are selling real products that you know weigh something that are physical products. Uh, they can sell them online. Uh, but they would rather sell them in the stores because they can get notion buys in the stores and they can get one large check from one large company for one large purchase and and get in front of massive customers, uh, which you can't do online uh, without a huge amount of, of digital marketing. So there are some advantages to bricks and mortar and uh, people who have products know it. So we're trying to help them get into those stores and and let them know what's involved in getting in and what they have to what their mindset has to be and and the people that they need to satisfy and what they're looking for so we're trying to demystify we you know barefoot we demystified wine and now we call it the barefoot spirit we're trying to demystify entrepreneurship mm, i see and what are your thoughts on you know because there are a lot of e-commerce um, you know, physical products coming out more than ever now with, you know, companies like Alibaba really opening up the playing field, making it easy to distribute physical products and, and create them and, and all those kinds of things. What are your thoughts on, on going, I guess, the wholesaler route versus uh, selling your B2C direct to the consumer? It has a lot to do, Nathan, with the price of your product and the weight of your product. In our case, we had a heavy product, glass and liquid weighs a lot, and it was a low price. So people are not interested in paying basically the same amount for shipping as they're paying for the product. Mm. Now, if you have a lightweight product and it's a big ticket item, in other words, it costs a good deal of money, then it makes online shopping much more reasonable because the freight is not such a huge consideration. That's one thing that needs to be taken into account. Yeah, another thing that you want to take into account is that uh, when you are trying to build a business, you have cash flow crunch big time. And you really need to have a massive sale. So you need to sell to a Walmart or to a home club or, or some big box store, thousands of units and get paid, you know, 40, 50 thousands of dollars at a time, because that's what you need to grow. That's what you need to pay your bills. Now, if you're just sitting there and you're selling on Alibaba or, you know, Amazon, you know, the sales will trickle in, that's for sure. But they're never going to tr trickle in in one giant check. And so that's that's another consideration is that is it is for some products, especially for most physical products, they would much rather be in a bricks and mortar store. In a bricks and mortar store, you get notion buys. There are no notion buys online. 
people don't go out and say, I'm going to go get a quart of milk and come back with a bottle of wine and uh, a loaf of bread and uh, a new can opener and a bunch of other stuff. You say, why did they buy all that extra stuff? They weren't going there to buy that. It's because they had a notion to, because they saw it on display and it was in their way. It was on their path. Now, yes, you can have pop-ups and stuff online with digital marketing, you know, and try to uh, figure out what the profile of the person is and show them stuff, but it's not the same. Mm. What you really get when you're in bricks and mortar is you get to feel the product. You get to have it physically demonstrated to you. You get to see the product. How many times have we all bought stuff online and we get it and we go, oh, wow, this looks a lot better in the picture, right? (laughs) (laughs) You see, it's like, you know, and then, you, you know, they try to make it easy for you to send back because they know that that's the problem. Now, I don't know in the future, maybe the skies will be just filled with uh, drones that are delivering everything to your door, but think about it. And returning (laughs) your products that look a little different than what you Mm. thought they were. So if you go out to like, you know, a a box store, uh, you know, you're going to fill up like four or five bags with like maybe 60 or 70 items. How would you like to have 60 or 70 items separately delivered to your house? See, so at some point there gets to be an efficiency of scale by taking that middle ground and saying, all right, I'll compromise. I will drive five or six blocks and pick up 50 or 60 items rather than order 50, 60 items online. And I guess the last thing to consider is that when you're new, when you have a new product and you're trying to sell it online, it's really hard to get attention for it. Whereas when you're in a store, people who are not interested in buying your product at all will see it. Mm, build trust. So, so you, yeah, you, you build trust. You know, you say, well, if the store's behind it, Maybe I should try it. So, you know, uh, there's no question that uh, online digital marketing is the wave of the future um, and everything else. But I believe that there will always be some form of bricks and mortar stores. Yes. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And that makes sense. I I definitely understand when you guys say around the, um, you know, the relationship when someone feels and has something in their hand is a different kind of relationship as opposed to buying something digital or even buying it online where it's not what you thought. Um, so much to the point that we're actually, you know, working on a, a physical book, a physical, beautifully designed coffee table book uh, with the best of our interviews um, if for the from the past 45, 50 back issues of the magazine since we've been running. And and I'm really excited Excellent. about that product, and I think people are going to love it. Um, but there's so much more complications that come with a, having a physical product. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, and you don't know what's coming until you get in there and really start doing it. That's how you find out, no matter what the business is. But, you know, the thing is you have to take a look on both sides of the equation. Yes, it's a lot more work. It's a lot more merchandising and a lot more, uh, you know, oversight on the one hand. But on the other hand, you can build your brand about 10 times faster and you're more likely to get to a point of being an acquisition product. So it's all how you look at it. You know, if you're willing to do the work, sure, go for it. We did. I I don't think that we would have done it if we had known the work. 
But I think of young people who are starting out, you know, with physical products, and we hope that we are demystifying the work and they're saying, oh, well, you know, Michael and Bonnie said this was the work. It's sort of like when you're diagnosed, you, you know, you're better off diagnosed and know what's wrong with you, right? Mm. <laughs> than not knowing what's wrong with you. Yeah, that's so true. Well, look, guys, um, this has been an awesome conversation. We have to work towards wrapping up. A um, couple of questions. In regards to, uh, you know, you guys have been entrepreneurs for such a long time. Uh, what, it, what it, If you both could share your number one piece of advice for young, aspiring or novice stage entrepreneurs and startup founders, that would be awesome. And then the last question is uh, just please tell us the, the best place uh, people can find you. Okay, I'd be happy to start off with uh, one of the prime lessons that any new company should really consider is you really want to start small. You want to start in a small place and get out there and understand your industry, understand the, all the people who will be touching your product or using your service and understand how to best relate to them and communicate with them to make sure that your product is getting the attention that you know it deserves. And the lessons that you'll learn by starting in a small place will be invaluable. Once you learn those lessons, then you can take your show on the road. Then you can expand. But if you're trying to expand before you've learned your lessons, you're just going to be making bigger mistakes in a bigger territory. And you don't want <laughs> mm. to be learning and developing your, your brand new, delicate, precious product or service that way. So give it some time. Give yourself some time to learn the lessons that you need to learn to be successful before you expand. We, we like to say... Don't sell your product any further away from your house when you start <laughs> than you're willing than you're willing to drive to apologize. <laughs> mm. And so um, with that said, if, if people would like to get a hold of us, there's a couple things you can do. Um, the Barefoot Spirit, uh, how hardship, hustle and heart built America's number one uh, wine brand. Uh, is a book you can get it on Amazon or, or online anywhere you'll enjoy it it's a fun book it's about Bonnie and I it's not a prescriptive text it's not you know uh, patronizing or a list and it's, it's a business adventure story so that's the barefoot spirit and then if you want to if you want to reach us you can go to the barefootspirit.com and uh, the barefootspirit.com has all kinds of cool stuff on it. Uh, it's got uh, lots of resources about business and whatnot. And uh, you can register for our, uh, for our weekly blog posts. So that's www.thebarefootspirit.com. Awesome. And um, we need to get your number one piece of advice too, Michael. Oh, my number one piece of advice is to make your mistakes right. Okay, so you're going to make mistakes. We made them, you're going to make them. The question is, do you say, oh, no, got it, figured it out, you know, and uh, took care of it and, and, and then rub your hands behind you like it never happened? Don't do that. If you make a mistake, bring it out on the table and, and, 
and think about how you made the mistake. When we say make mistakes right, we don't mean to write the mistake, which you certainly have to, but we mean to write it down, W-R-I-T-E. So you write down the mistake. This is a mistake I made. Here's how it happened. And then you make a list of all the documents that need changing. Maybe it's a sign. Maybe it's a label. Maybe it's a checklist. Maybe it's a sign-off sheet. Maybe it's a clause in a contract. Maybe it's a policy or a procedure or a job description. But it's something that is written in your business. And the more you do that, the less those mistakes happen, the stronger your business gets. We built our business on the backs of our mistakes. Mm, Love it. Awesome. Well, look, thank you so much for your time, guys. This has been an amazing interview. And uh, I look forward to meeting you in person soon. Excellent, Nathan. So do we. Thank you, Nathan. It's been a pleasure. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.